Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. We hope you're safe and healthy. Now, throughout the course of this pandemic, states have grappled with when and how to reopen. And over the course of the last week, we've seen many of them take their first steps towards a new sort of normalcy. Most are reopening in phases, like North Carolina, where Governor Roy Cooper issued a stay-at-home order that took effect on March 30th. Governor Cooper is a Democrat who was elected in 2016, the same year that Donald Trump claimed victory in the state over Hillary Clinton by just under four points. Republicans still control both chambers in the state legislature, but in 2018, Democrats were able to gain enough seats to end the veto-proof supermajority the GOP held. And it's a state Democrats really want to win in 2020. I connected with Governor Cooper to understand how he envisions reopening and keeping North Carolinians safe. Our stay-at-home order, uh, when phase one goes into effect, will still be in place. People can just do a few more things, but we want to remind people that it's best if you stay home, if you possibly can. This virus is still out there. It's highly contagious. It can kill people. And we still need to work hard to slow the spread. What is it that you have done in North Carolina that you think puts you in a better position than, as you said, some of the your neighboring states or other su- southern states have done in, in corralling this virus? We hit it early. And I think we had strong local officials across the state and a business community and a healthcare community that sounded the alarm. And I think people understood what we needed to do. You only had to flip on a television and look at what was happening in Washington State, in New York, in Italy. And people of North Carolina didn't want that to happen. So we put these rules in place. People, for the most part, followed them. Uh, We still, right now, we're still a little over 13,000 cases, but we're a state of almost 11 million. Sadly, we've had 507 deaths. But we are looking at the data in order to make decisions about when we move into next phases. And it's data that people can see on a dashboard. And we can all look at it, see how we're doing. And if we don't believe we need to be going into phase two when the order runs out, we will extend it because public health is going to guide our way. We're getting the information from the health experts about when we go into different phases. We're getting good input from businesses and from employees uh, to determine how we do it when, when we move into the phases. And I think the bottom line is, is we want people as safe as possible. What I worry about are these officials who are encouraging violation of the rules. Uh, I think you're seeing a lot of other grievances uh, being put on with with the the mask, so to speak, of COVID-15. They're using this issue uh, to, to express other grievances. And that's unfortunate because we are talking about a life or death situation here. So right now, There are a million North Carolinians who've applied for unemployment, and that's about 20 percent of your state's workforce. What do you say to those North Carolinians who are worried that just are not going to be able to make it to the end of May without getting their job? Many families are hanging by thread. There are many people who have filed for unemployment insurance for the very first time. 
my three-phase plan on this pandemic was to, number one, get people the medical treatment they needed when they got sick, number two, to slow the spread of the virus, and number three, to cushion the blow to the economy. Our unemployment insurance payments going out to people will help. The stimulus payments will help. Uh, we're working hard to get small businesses propped up with grants and loans, and we have to continue to push for a way to safely reignite our economy. And we are working as hard as we possibly can. I think with the extra boost from the feds regarding unemployment insurance, that it can help uh, get three people through for a while. But we are going to have to find a way to safely reignite the economy. It's not going to be easy uh, through the next year. As the president wants a, a raging economy in a few months, I don't see that happening because uh, there's been too hard of a hit. But we do have to carefully and cautiously work our way back while realizing that, that people are dying and that this this contagious virus is going to continue to be with us until we have a vaccine. The other thing the president really wants to see is the convention, the Republican convention, which is being held in your state uh, in Charlotte at the end of August. And I just saw that uh, Fox News is reporting that the Republican Party has hired a senior medical advisor to pave, this is their quote, a safe path for the event. Are you in touch with the RNC about the convention and the discussions about whether it happens? And isn't it ultimately up to you whether this convention goes on or not? Well, obviously, we can have statewide rules that can determine what kinds of meetings can be held, mass gatherings, that kind of thing. But it's too early to be able to tell that at this point. Uh, Mm. We're here the first week in May. That's in August. Our administration, yes, is talking with Charlotte, with Mecklenburg County, uh, with the RNC uh, about ways to do this. One thing that I have learned is that I think the the Democratic National uh, Committee and the RNC are talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats have to make decisions, I think, first uh, about what they're going to do. And so it's good to hear they're talking to each other because uh, it's a big step to have a lot of people coming from all over the country into a city that if there's any city in North Carolina that has been our hotspot, it has been Charlotte with the international airport. Uh, It's one of the greatest places to, to live in the country. But I think that there is some apprehension and concern about the magnitude of this, if they do have it, and we're, we're going to continue to keep a close eye on our indicators. We've set up seven indicators we look at to whether we move into various phases or not, and we're going to have to make that decision when the time comes. I know Medicaid expansion has been a very big issue for you. You and the Republican le- legislature have been at loggerheads on this. But I saw that the other day the leaders in the House, the Republican leaders in the state House, said they're open to limited Medicaid expansion just to cover coronavirus. Um, Is that something that you can support? And do you think that something like this could make it through the process? 
every single North Carolinian should have health insurance. We have to find a way to close this coverage gap. This has been one of the major battles uh, that I've had with the General Assembly. And in fact, I had vetoed last year's budget and we still had not settled it, settled that veto because they had not been able to override it and we had not come up with a compromised budget. And one of the main reasons was because they had in fact not expanded Medicaid to give health insurance to over 500,000 North Carolinians who don't have it, many of them working. Here we have the bright, glaring lights of a pandemic. If ever you're going to give health insurance to people, now is the time. was pleased to see the House members uh, talking about this. I think we had had better results in the House anyway. Our biggest problem has been the Senate. We're going to continue to push for this, unfortunately. It may be a November issue. I think likely uh, this is going to be part of a campaign, and North Carolinians are going to be talking about what kind of legislature they're going to elect. Uh, we were able to break the supermajority Republican legislature in 2018, and now all of my vetoes are holding. And I think there is a good chance because our state has won a partisan gerrymandering suit, and we do have new districts, there's a good chance that Democrats could take over the legislature, and Medicaid expansion may be one of the biggest mm. issues in this coming election. And you're up for re-election this fall uh, yes, as well. I am. And so do you, do you see that your handling then of this crisis is, is also going to be on the ballot, a referendum on your handling of this? Well, uh, clearly the, the best way to campaign is to do a good job. And I'm working very hard to gain the confidence of the people by being transparent with the data that we're using to make these decisions. The election will take care of itself if I do a good job as governor. But we're going to keep working to move our state forward and to make the right decisions. And I'll tell you, as I was examining challenges that North Carolina would face as I took office of governor, I'll have to admit the global pandemic was not on the checklist. But hey, here we are. And uh, we're going to get through this. I, I see everyday things that give me hope in North Carolina. It, it, it is amazing to see that tech worker who's now teleworking post on her Facebook that she would be glad to do child care for her health care friends now that she is home. I see the young granddaughter drawing a picture for grandmother and standing outside the rest home window holding up the picture picture and talking to her grandmother through the window because she can't visit in the nursing home. And I, I see that neighbor who does grocery shopping for that at-risk senior and every week puts the groceries on the doorstep. That, that's the kind of North Carolina that I know. That's the kind of thing we're going to have to depend on each other for. And together we can get through this and hopefully come out better on the other end. Well, Governor Cooper, thank you so much for talking with me and good luck in all that you're doing and stay safe. Thank you, Amy. You as well. North Carolina has been largely successful at slowing the spread of the virus. We have not seen a peak or a spike here in North Carolina. We have truly flattened the curve. 
That's Dr. Mandy Cohen, Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. I talked to her to get a better understanding of the metrics they're using to determine when and how to reopen. So the metrics that we have been looking at are are four of them, and we've been very public about them. They've been out for more than two weeks at this point, and we have them up on our dashboard, and folks here in North Carolina can follow along. There are four things that we look at as we look at our trends. The first that we look at is part of our surveillance data. We look at the number of people coming into the emergency room for COVID-like symptoms. Second, we look at our day-over-day new lab-confirmed cases, so new cases day-over-day. The third metric is the percent positive of the number of total cases. And then the fourth is our day-over-day hospitalization. So we look at those four key metrics, and then we look at some really important capabilities that we need our state to have in order for us to move forward. Those are things like the ability to do um, extensive statewide testing. Uh, the ability to do the contact tracing that folks have, the detective work that folks have been talking about, um, and then to make sure that we have the personal protective equipment and the hospital surge planning uh, that we need in case uh, we would see those cases rise. And the good news is, is we've seen all of our metrics really hold stable. Um, they're, they're not declining uh, like you might see in New York, where they had a big surge up and then come down. Because we are flattening the curve and we really never search saw that peak, we're really looking for more of a stability or a leveling in our metrics. And that's what we have largely uh, seen. And so that's why we feel like looking at those metrics, looking at our ability to now test and trace and have the protective equipment, we feel good about moving forward with our first phase of easing uh, restrictions. And we are doing it in a phased approach. We know we need to do this gradually. Um, and so that's why we're taking a, a first uh, measured step forward. Okay, before we get to what people can do and not do during phase one. Your website is very good. And it's very clear and easy to follow. And there's it looks like something like a sort of a PowerPoint presentation. And there's a section that says where we are today and goes through the trends just as you outline them. Mm -hmm. But as you look at Mm -hmm. them, there are X marks next to them. It's red X's, not green check marks. So How should people who are in the state feel comfortable knowing that there are still red X marks near where the trend line should be? Yes. So the governor and I have been doing a number of press conferences over a series of weeks going through these graphs. And what I say is, look, I'm not looking for straight A's. We're not looking Mm -hmm. for perfection. What we're looking for is stability. But the reason that we still have some of those X check marks, one of them is our day over day case counts. We continue to see them go up slightly, and that we see in the context of our additional testing. So as we test more, we know that there was coronavirus, COVID-19 here in North Carolina, but we knew that only our, our laboratory testing was only picking up a percentage of that. As we test more, we're going to pick up more. So I think we have all been expecting for our cases to trend up slightly. Now, if they doubled, if, if it, it started to look uh, like an, uh, an increase that was uh, more than just a steady, slow uptick, that would be something that would be uh, worrying me. The other thing that uh, I think a lot of folks are wondering about is, as you're watching these metrics, if you do see that the trend is going in the wrong direction, the plan is to pull back, correct? Yes, we, we've said from the beginning that we have to have the data guide us here. If we need to, we will have to pull back. And so for us, pulling back would be to move back to a full stay at home. We've talked about 
if we pull back, would we do that for the whole state? Could we act regionally? I think we are definitely keeping regional options on the table in, in case we need it. The geography of North Carolina makes regions a little bit challenging, which is different from a New York sort of geography, but, um, but that's still an option on the table. Well, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and good luck in all the work that you're doing. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Dr. Mandy Cohen is Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. North Carolina's Phase 1 reopening, which begins this weekend, includes a relaxation of restrictions on social gatherings, including worship services. Services with more than 10 people can take place as long as they are outside and social distancing is respected. Sven Shelton is the lead pastor at Mercy Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, where their worship gatherings have moved online. I caught up with him this week and asked him how he and his congregation are navigating the pandemic and how they'll approach North Carolina's cautious reopening. They didn't offer Pandemics 101 in my <laughs> seminary where I went to. So uh, this really has been a, um, a just a learning experience is a, a huge understatement. And I know I'm not alone. Our profession isn't alone. Everybody's trying to work through this. But certainly for me, I think um, my hair has grown grayer a lot faster over the past two and a half months or so. Uh, we did. We switched to online gatherings and One of the great things um, that I'm very grateful for about our church is the resilience that our people have shown. I was sharing with um, a couple of friends yesterday. We have had more engagement uh, in every metric that we use to uh, measure how our church is doing. Uh, More engagement in the past two and a half months than at any time in our history, all the while with the doors closed. In terms of um, giving, the generosity of our people has gone up. Um, the number of people involved in our uh, midweek gatherings, our Bible studies, we call them community groups, uh, has gone up. The number of interactions that our um, leaders are having with our people has gone way up. So by that, I mean just calls, member care, and watching out for one another. All, a whole lot of um, interaction has actually gone way up, uh, even while the doors have been closed. We believe the Lord has really been kind and actually shown us some new opportunities for how we can engage new tools for engagement of one another uh, through this pandemic. The phase one process in North Carolina does allow places of worship to open to more than 10 people as long as the service is outdoors and your social distancing. Is that something that you're planning for um, for your services upcoming? So at this point, I'm going to say, we're, we're considering how we can get back together, mm. trying to do that um, in a metropolitan area where it's honestly, we just don't have the, for our church in specific, uh, we don't have the space outdoors mm. where we could do something like that. And so while it is a, um, for a church, our size limited by our actual, you know, footprint that we have in terms of uh, where we would do it in a parking lot or in a, a field, or we just don't don't have that. So we would have to rent that out. We'd have to make a lot of accommodations to create something that is just simply not in our normal rhythms. And we're already doing so much new normal that that's going to be a, a hurdle. So what we're watching is how long are we going to be in phase one, which is not something anyone knows. But in short, if we were to plan an outdoor gathering, 
it would probably take about two weeks to get us there. And if that's how long phase one is, and then phase two changes things, well, then we kind of spent a lot of energy in the wrong direction. I know that in a lot of states, we've seen a lot of localities, there's been this sort of tension and push and pull between uh, the city or state regulations on everybody, including places of worship, and pastors and other people of faith saying, you know, these are too restrictive. Um, This is an important, we are an essential service in the same way that grocery stores and other places are. Have you been feeling that tension in your own congregation? I will tell you that we have from the get-go been uh, encouraged that even our our county, Mecklenburg County, which would be uh, the county where the largest number of cases are in North Carolina, uh, was was kind of watching the state and both the county and the state agreed that there were that the we myself as a pastor was able to travel over to our facility because we are considered an essential service and I was I was encouraged by that because I think there's a recognition there of um, the role that the faith community plays in the community. I recognize also that as a pastor, I am not a public health expert. And I think it's good for us as um, Christians, we are called to allow the government that God has given us to, uh, to lead us and to protect its citizens. And so I'm trying and our church is trying to model what it looks like to be a good citizen um, in terms of letting our governing authorities lead us. But my goodness, how difficult um, a job they have. So we've been praying. Um, almost daily. We're actually in a, a, a regular time of prayer for our governing authorities because they've never dealt with anything like this before. And so I'm appreciative where they have acknowledged uh, things like First Amendment rights and not wanting to infringe on those. And uh, we do feel that tension. We feel it uh, among the people in our congregation, a longing to be back together and making sure that uh, we are you know, submitted first and foremost to the Lord our God and to what scripture says, but we can do that while being submitted to our local uh, authorities because the scriptures call us to do that. Well, Pastor Shelton, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking with us, and I really hope you and your community stay safe at this time. Yeah, thank you so much, Amy. I hope the same for you, and I appreciate you uh, being willing to share the stories of what's going on in the church. Spent Shelton is the lead pastor at Mercy Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we've been hearing from many of our listeners in North Carolina about the state's reopening. Hi, this is Erica calling from Cary, North Carolina. I definitely do not feel safe enough to resume normal activities. I will continue to stay safe at home as long as it's possible. And I'm just going to take it slow. My name is Fred Brinkley, uh, Waxhaw, North Carolina. I'm not scared that we're opening up. I'm worried, and I'm going to do the same thing I've been doing for the last two months. This is Steve from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm not going to rush out too soon. I don't want to overcrowd the parks and have to have it rolled back. Hey, this is Jody from Charlotte, North Carolina. I don't plan to change any of my behavior. New cases are still occurring daily, and people are still dying. If I have to go to the grocery store, I will wear my mask that I made. Otherwise, I'm in no hurry to go shopping or to eat out. I do miss my pedicures, though. 
but I'll be patient and wait. We always love to hear from you. Keep the calls coming. 877-8-MY-TAKE. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. most recent polling has shown that Americans are pretty much united in their worry about the coronavirus and in their support of the government's actions on limiting economic and social movement. But when it comes to how seriously to take this threat and how the government should respond to it, well, that partisan gap reemerges. For example, a recent Fox News poll in Michigan found that while 52 percent of Clinton voters said they were very worried about catching the coronavirus, just 24 percent of Trump voters felt similarly. Dr. Lucian Conway is a professor of social psychology at the University of Montana. He and his team have been researching this gap. I started out by asking Dr. Conway what research shows about the psychology of liberals and conservatives. Conservatives famously score higher on the belief in a dangerous world scale, which suggests they're generally more likely to focus on danger or threat. Research also shows that conservatives are more motivated to vote when they read a message that's framed in threatening terms versus reward terms. And more specific to disease, a socio-ecological work, including some of our own work, suggests that regions that chronically have more disease threat are more likely to be conservative. So there's a lot of converging reasons to believe conservatives are more likely to be sensitive to threat, conservatism is more likely to result from threat, and when you have conservative people and they are faced with threatening diseases and threatening issues, they are more likely on average to be motivated by that threat. Now, is there any indication that someone who is liberal then is not as reactive to this disease threat? Yes, yes. In general, we're talking about degrees here. We're comparing liberals and conservatives at the same time. So when I say conservative, I actually mean, in most of the studies that we're talking about, we mean people who are more conservative than liberal. So the same would be true. It's just the other end of the scale in the study where you have liberals who are essentially more likely to respond, for example, to a reward-based message than a threat-based message. You know, liberals, societies in which liberals live are less likely to have, on average, disease threat uh, as a chronic presence. We also know, just in looking at polling, that Democrats are more concerned or say they're more worried about getting mm-hmm. uh, coronavirus than Republicans. So how, how do you explain that? Yeah, so that's one of the reasons that motivated our research on it. We were very curious why, given all of this past work that suggests conservatives ought to be especially likely to be worried about this disease, they seem relatively apathetic compared to liberals. So we investigated two possibilities to your question. First, we thought maybe the two groups are actually experiencing COVID differently. So maybe liberals on average might be in reality more affected than conservatives. So maybe if the original epicenter had been Houston instead of New York— you know, a more conservative region instead of a more liberal region, the roles would have been reversed. 
Secondly, we investigated whether or not conservatives might view the disease as less threatening because conservatives and liberals are motivated to want different political outcomes. And COVID's perceived threat level differentially influences those outcomes. So maybe liberals are more motivated to view the disease as threatening because it serves their political ends. And conservatives are less motivated to view the disease as threatening because that serves their ends. So we ran three studies to try and tease apart those two possible explanations. And what did you find? Well, what we found was surprising. At least it was somewhat surprising to me. It isn't the reality of different experiences that's driving conservatives and liberals to believe that the disease is differentially threatening, at least not very much. We found far more evidence that desired political outcomes were the reason conservatives view the disease as less threatening than liberals. In particular, conservatives are less inclined to want big government interventions. And because a truly threatening COVID makes government interventions more psychologically plausible, they're actually motivated to disbelieve in COVID being threatening. So it's the classic case of the cart driving the horse in a sense. Instead of the level of threat influencing policy choices and policy preferences, it suggests that preferred policy preferences are influencing perceptions of threat. And how much of this do you think is driven by partisanship versus ideology? In other words, the fear that it's going to hurt or help Donald Trump more so than whether you identify yourself as conservative in your values or liberal in your values? That is a great question. We did not ask the participants about their desire to see Donald Trump being elected. So I can't say directly. I think if we'd asked them that, we would have found a similar kind of effect as we did for the general ideology questions about big government that we did ask. In other words, we defined Republicans want Donald Trump to be reelected. They think COVID is uh, threatening. COVID might interfere with that, and therefore they're motivated to view it as less threatening. Liberals don't want him to be reelected. And they think the disease might help him not get reelected, so they're motivated to view it as more threatening. So I suspect we would have found that, but I don't know. I will add this about Trump. We did ask participants how much they trusted Donald Trump to communicate information about COVID. I thought for sure that that would be one of the most important things to explain why. In other words, I thought it was kind of the effect of Donald Trump himself, because early on especially, he was inclined to downplay the disease. So I figured, well... Republicans probably trust him more, and that's why they downplay the disease. No, actually, they do trust him more, that's for sure, in our data. But that had nothing to do with why they they believe that COVID is less threatening than liberals. Mm. Because it's, as you and others have pointed out, when we go back to, say, Ebola, Republicans were much more concerned, said they were much more concerned about the threat of Ebola when it was President Obama who was in the White House. And Democrats were not as worried. Absolutely correct. You can go back even farther in the current crisis to when the origin was in China and it wasn't close to home, so to speak. Conservatives expressed that it was more threatening then than they do now, again, serving a particular political end. By the way, that that knife cuts both ways because liberals were less concerned about it in a sense then than they are now, again, suggesting an ideological motivation, if you will, on both sides. So that kind of gets to this question, too, of, well, where do we go from here? You did end your blog post by sort of posing the question of, well, what would happen if people who define themselves as conservatives find themselves either getting the virus or knowing more people with the virus? Is this going to really challenge 
the findings and the sort of conservative, liberal, ideological viewpoint of this disease? So yes, we, we also found that as both groups experienced the effects of the pandemic more, that the effects of political ideology on perceived threat became less important. Now, we don't have a longitudinal study here, but this does suggest that to the degree that the disease becomes more pervasive, now I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good thing, I'm not saying I want that, but it might contain a slight silver lining and that our data suggests it will reduce the ideological divide. I also did just want to point something else out. There's an irony here. If the measurements put in place that, in a sense, that Republicans like less work, it might actually undermine the potential of the disease to, to draw groups together, right? Because if, if you put these measurements in place and they reduce the impact of the disease, well, the impact of the disease is one of the things that's drawing the groups together in our data. So there might be an irony in that uh, the effects of the government might work and in turn drive the group slightly apart. So the more successful we are at, and we meaning the government is, uh, and these restrictions are about moving around and opening business at reducing death, the more likely that they increase our partisanship. Correct. Just because I don't want to be the person who's unintentionally increasing the divide, I will say that both liberals and conservatives in our data do think the disease is threatening. They just have different levels of it. Conservatives are not like... We don't think this thing matters at all. You know, they do right. think it matters. It's just a, a relative difference. Well, Dr. Conway, good luck with all that you're doing and stay safe. All right. Same to you. Thank you very much for having me on. It was a delight. The coronavirus pandemic has wreaked economic devastation across the country on a scale we haven't seen since the Great Depression. The unemployment rate hit 14.7%, according to new data released Friday morning by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Congress has appropriated trillions of dollars to try to mitigate that damage, including $650 billion to help small businesses through a program known as the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. The first round of PPP funds were quickly depleted, and even those who have gotten the money worry it may not be enough to help them open their doors again at the end of this crisis. About six weeks ago, we checked in on a couple of small business owners to see how they were handling the pandemic. I'm Lenora Strada. I'm the owner of Three Babes Bake Shop in San Francisco. I'm also the founder and executive director of SF New Deal. My name is Abigail Opaya, co-founder of Yoluchi by Unruly, a mobile hairstyling service in New York and L.A. This week, I wanted to hear about how they've been able to manage and what it's like to operate a business in a world that's been completely transformed. Before COVID-19, Lenore's company, Three Babes Bake Shop, employed around 26 people and received most of their revenue from standing cafeteria orders at companies like Google and Facebook. She even had plans to open a second location, but business has dropped considerably. We still here are under the shelter in place order, so uh, we are we're making pies and, and selling them via delivery or pickup. We're still at the farmer's market and we're selling through grocery partners. But in terms of our, our new space that we're supposed to open, construction still hasn't resumed. Yaluchi, Abigail's mobile on-demand hairstyling service, came to clients in their homes pre-COVID-19. With the restrictions on services that offer grooming in place, that's no longer possible. Since the last time we talked, our business is um, still 
shut down. There's still restrictions in both New York and LA um, for personal grooming and hairstyling services. Um, but what we have done to bring in a little bit of revenue for our stylists is to uh, launch online consultations. They're not that much in terms of in terms of cost, but at least it brings something in for them um, while we're waiting to get back to work. Both Lenore and Abigail have tried to find ways to keep their businesses afloat as they've come to terms with the impact coronavirus has had on their revenue. For Abigail, that includes offering the option to book a virtual consultation with a stylist who would walk you through doing your own hair. Before everything hit, we were doing um, a lot in terms of revenue per month. Um, This was getting into our busy season. So at this time, we would have been making a lot more money. But now we're doing it where our stylists are getting paid directly. We're not taking commission from them. So whatever, you know, clients... um, book goes directly to our stylist as a way to just kind of help them. So we're still taking a loss on that. I'm not expecting being able to scale up to the levels where we were before. Around 85% of our business was to companies who had regular breakfast and lunch, like massive breakfast and lunch orders um, for desserts and breakfast pastries. And I think realistically, I don't think that companies like Google or Facebook are going to have all of their workers coming back this year even. So I think um, we're expecting to have one to two years of either a completely different business model, but also vastly decreased orders. They've sought out loans and are adjusting expectations along the way. Okay, so we got PPP funding last Friday. That was seven weeks after I had already laid everyone off. So in that time period, most of my workers applied for unemployment right when they were laid off. For many of them, unfortunately, it took about five weeks to get their first check, which was pretty tough. So I actually made personal loans to some of my workers who needed help. You know, at the time when I had to make layoffs, unfortunately, like PPP funding wasn't even announced at all. (laughs) So I, I kind of wasn't expecting, even if it had come the first week that the program was released, it wouldn't have been in time to sort of save jobs. I feel lucky to have gotten PPP in the second round. Um, After the first round, I was feeling a little, I mean, starting to get kind of worried about what was going to happen if I didn't get it because we, um, you know, we've continued operating and we're making some income, but it really isn't enough to actually pay people, um, even for the limited hours they're working um, as we've lost 85% of our business. We applied for PPP, I believe, um, a couple weeks ago um, and so we haven't heard back from them and it's been it's been longer than that since we even applied for the disaster loan it took four weeks for us to get just a thousand dollars and and then the fund ran, ran out so we're just doing a lot of follow-up with them um, to see if anything can come out of that at all in the time since congress appropriated funds for small businesses we've learned that large chains like shake shack and ruth's chris steakhouse applied for and received tens of millions of dollars from the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program. Both have returned the funds, but even so, that still didn't sit well with actual small business owners who have access to limited funds, especially as the funds ran out. Uh, Yeah, when we heard about that, we felt really disappointed and very frustrated because, you know, the name even implies Small Business Association. So in my mind, I'm thinking, why are these big businesses, you know, getting such a huge handout when, you know, these funds are really supposed to be allocated towards us? So it was very frustrating and very, very disappointing. And it just made me think, okay, where did the breakdown happen? Like, who actually approved this? How did they get funding ahead of people that actually needed it? We also were hearing that, you know, people who have existing loans with banks are were prioritized when it came to actually 
like funding loans for them, which makes sense because, you know, if you're a bank and you have a, a company that has an outstanding loan to you, you likely want to get them help so they don't fail and default on their loan. But I, I think like, like a lot of things, like sort of relationships and resources, you get more relationships and resources. So I think it makes sense understanding how the world works. It also is like a gross, um, <laughs> like a gross misuse of funds. And I do think it's the government's job to sort of provide that, um, that chat. Many small business owners realize that coronavirus will alter their business indefinitely, or at least until there's a vaccine. And while some states have started to reopen and start greeting customers in person again, owners are spending a lot of time thinking about how to make sure their customers and employees feel safe. Some of the things that we're doing to prepare um, is we're purchasing PPE for our stylists. Um, so masks, gloves, any types of sanitary wipes um, or disinfectants, so to speak, just to get them prepared for when we do um, go back to taking appointments. Um, obviously, they're contractors, so they have to apply, supply those things for themselves as well. But being that this is a new territory for everybody, we're just doing our part just to make sure that we cover all bases and supply them with all the things that they would need. Um, we're still working out exactly what it's going to look like, what kind of specific steps they need to take when entering the home. And the same thing goes for clients. Um, we're still working all of that out. But the very first step is just to at least equip them with the things that they need to protect themselves. He was an innocent man. He is a uh, great gentleman. He was targeted by the Obama administration. And he was targeted in order to try and take down a president. And what they've done is a disgrace. And I hope a big price is going to be paid. This week, the Justice Department announced that they were dropping the criminal case against Michael Flynn, President Trump's first national security advisor. Flynn had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI twice regarding conversations he'd had with a Russian diplomat in 2016. Attorney General Bill Barr's decision to drop the case was shocking for many and raised questions about undermining the credibility of the Russia investigation. He talked about the decision on CBS this week. They did not have a basis for a counterintelligence investigation against Flynn at that stage. Does the fact remain that he lied? Well, you know, people sometimes plead to things uh, that turn out not to be crimes. What should Americans take away from your actions in the Flynn case today? I want to make sure uh, that we restore confidence in the system. There's only one standard of justice. I sat down with Katie Benner, who covers the Justice Department for The New York Times, and started off by asking her why this is happening now. Well, I think we have to remember that the Justice Department has always very much disliked the Flynn case, especially the Justice Department, though, under Bill Barr. There was always some debate about kind of what the point of the Flynn case was, right? They have this retired general, he has lied to the FBI, but at the same time, they don't get anything out of him when he pleads guilty. And what I mean by that is often when the FBI decides to pressure somebody on what they call a 1001 charge, lying to the FBI, it is often in service of extracting more information from that witness or turning them into a cooperating witness, right? You don't, you, you are working toward a bigger goal. In this case, they were working toward bigger goals in the Russian investigation. That was clear. But at the end of the day, General Flynn, he he never really cooperated with the government. He never really gave them very much. And then soon after pleading guilty, not once but twice, he got a new attorney 
who then immediately started trying to dismantle that guilty plea. So from every angle, from every point of view, this case was just something that the department felt was a problem. It's interesting, Katie, right? Because from a legal point of view, you're right. It didn't really give much to the department or to the case itself. But it certainly set off the political, it was sort of the political catalyst, right? Flynn pleads guilty. (laughs) The president asks James Comey to go easy on him. He fires Comey. Then we have the special investigator appointed to deal with the Comey firing and blah, blah, blah. So Flynn start, kind of started all of this. Is that, is that why you think this case was so important to Bill Barr, to the White House? I mean, it's certainly one of the reasons why the case was so important to the White House and to the president. It felt very personal. It feels like from the White House and from President Trump's point of view, they're saying, we fired him for lying to Mike Pence. We already we already took care of the situation. We are unsure why it's necessary now to try to get this guy into jail. Mm. And I think that for the Justice Department, it's complicated for the reasons that I said before. Also, it's complicated because the case did show, once we saw a full accounting of it, both in the Mueller report and in some of the exhibits in the case itself, a real dysfunction at the top levels of the Justice Department. You do have this very real worry. Why is this man lying to us about his conversations with the Russian ambassador? Especially when we're doing a Russian investigation, it does seem pertinent, one. And then two, does it open up the worry that he could be blackmailed when other people know what he has said to the Russian ambassador, but perhaps, you know, the rest of the government, the rest of the administration does not, you know, law enforcement officials worried that Russia could blackmail General Flynn, essentially. Mm. So these are two real worries. But then what happens afterwards is you see, you know, then Sally Gates, the deputy attorney general, then acting attorney general, she says, hey, listen, I have a protocol for this. I want to take care of it. And then we see the former director of the FBI, James Comey, basically defy her and order his people to go ahead and interview General Flynn. So you also see some dysfunction at the top of the department at the time. Again, there are lots of reasons why people at the Justice Department just don't like this case. So is this setting some sort of precedent or is this just sort of a unique case? You know, I, I, I hesitate to say um, that we'll never see anything again <laughs> in this administration. Uh, we have an election looming in November, and I feel like things, especially around the Justice Department, are only going to become more intense as we get closer to Election Day. Certainly, this is the first time we've seen something like this. My colleague, Charlie Savage, ran a story on Thursday that just said nobody... Democrat, Republican, of any administration can ever remember the Justice Department taking the guilty plea of somebody who did lie, and we know that he lied because we have the wiretaps showing that he lied. He admitted it twice. He pled guilty twice. Never has the Justice Department taken that circumstance and said, we're not only going to not prosecute, we're going to just withdraw this case publicly after years of wrestling with it. That is completely new. At the same time, while the action is new, the political nature of the action, the controversial nature of the action, that is not new. And that is something we've seen come up again and again and again within the Justice Department, and now even more within the national security community, as the president imposes his will more and more on some of these institutions. Mm. Well, in every president has been accused of politicizing 
his Department of Justice or Attorney General. So is this more unique than in previous administrations? Well, it certainly is. But first, I guess I'd want to give uh, Attorney General Barr a voice here. He did Mm. do an interview with CBS. He wasn't silent. Very, very soon after this decision was made on Thursday, he had an interview with CBS News in which he defended himself. And I think it's important to note that in his accounting, he says this was not a political act. He was, in fact, depoliticizing the Justice Department because General Flynn never should have been interviewed by the FBI. He never should have been prosecuted by the Justice Department. That All of that was political, and he is undoing those political actions. So I do want to make sure that we, mm-hmm. we, we understand this from his point of view. I think there are people who would argue that that's not the case or would argue that the perception of what's happened is very difficult to square with that idea. Got it. And finally, Judge Emmett Sullivan, the one who accepted Flynn's guilty plea, still has a chance to weigh in all of this. Do you have any expectations of what he is going to do? You know, Judge Sullivan is an interesting figure. I've spoken with people who work at the Justice Department, have worked at the Justice Department, have presented cases before him. He took that guilty plea, and he is also known for sometimes not taking guilty pleas if he doesn't mm-hmm. think that they would pass muster. So he he took the plea. I think he will be curious and want some more information about how this came to pass. Uh, you know, there's also a chance that he wouldn't dismiss the case with prejudice. And I guess what that means is to to make sure this is the final iteration of the Michael Flynn matter to make sure that we're not going to get some sort of double jeopardy issue down the road. The judge would dismiss with prejudice, sort of putting a stake in the case. It will be interesting to see whether or not he does that. The Justice Department has requested it. We don't know what he'll say. It's just very impossible to imagine that he will simply accept the government's motion and say nothing himself because he's been deeply involved in this case. Well, Katie Benner, thank you for helping us understand all of this a little bit better. Well, thanks for having me. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.